Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. This episode, I have a tale of extraordinary endurance, I have a tale of extraordinary natural ability, and finally, a story that has elements of both, with a very large helping of miraculous luck. Our first story takes place in 1950s Manhattan. The net effects of sleep deprivation are well documented but not so well publicised. Most of us would know from experience the reduction in alertness, the inability to concentrate, slower reaction times, etc. Anyone who has been a shift worker or stayed up overnight to write a uni assignment they spent a little bit too long procrastinating about will know exactly what I mean. But the consequences for our health can be far more serious. Even losing one hour's sleep can have serious detrimental effects. For example, once a year when we put the clock forward for daylight saving, hospitals report a 24% spike in heart attacks, while at the end of daylight saving, there is a 21% reduction in heart attacks. I don't want to sound alarmist, but the simple act of being awake causes low-level brain damage. One of the reasons we know so much about sleep deprivation today is in part thanks to a very public experiment that took place in 1959. Peter Tripp was a DJ, not the kind of DJ we think of today. In 1959, a DJ was a radio personality who generally broadcast popular contemporary music with an accompanying announcement, without mixing, blending or aligning beats. He was an early pioneer of the Top 40 format. He was well-known, likeable, and his star was on the rise. And to give his star an extra little shove, Tripp decided a publicity stunt might be in order. He would conduct a charity drive for the March of Dimes. People could pledge money to the charity, and Tripp would broadcast his program each day at its usual time from a booth in New York's Times Square for eight days, entirely without sleep. A team of researchers sat with Tripp to both study him and keep him awake, partly at the behest of the radio station and partly because it was an opportunity far too good to miss. The stunt, publicly at least, appeared to go rather well, with Tripp able to slip into DJ mode and keep the banter going throughout his four-hour shifts on air, but off-air, things weren't going well at all. He went through the usual drowsiness, seeing things out the corner of his eyes and so on, but over time, things continued to deteriorate. His core temperature began to decline, and with that, so did his sanity. By day three, he was unable to even recite the alphabet, and became so angry and abusive towards his barber, he made him cry. After he had been deprived of sleep for around 120 hours or five days, he was hallucinating. Trip had begun to trip seeing spiders in his shoes and at one point believing flames had shot out of a drawer he had opened. The startled Trip thought the scientists had pranked him, but as he became increasingly delusional, this turned into a perceived conspiracy where the scientists were plotting to make him give up and go to bed, and that thought, for reasons best known to him, evolved into the scientists plotting to frame him for a crime. At one point, he mistook a conservatively dressed gentleman for an undertaker, and not wanting to be buried while still alive, he fled into the street. Eventually, his determination failed him, and he spent the last two days of the experiment being given amphetamines in order to complete it. 
By this stage, he had become reasonably certain that he wasn't Peter Tripp. Everyone else just thought he was. He was, in fact, his friend that only he could see in the face of a clock. Tripp was effectively dreaming while still awake. During sleep, the brain has cycles of REM sleep, and this will eventually start to happen whether you are actually asleep or not. At the end of the 200 hours, 201 to be exact, Peter Tripp went to bed and slept soundly for a full 24 hours. When he awoke, he seemed unaffected, but his wife did notice subtle differences. She didn't believe he was the same man anymore, and they would divorce soon afterward. Peter Tripp would be involved in the payola scandal the following year in 1960, and found guilty of taking bribes from the music industry to push certain songs. His career as a DJ never recovered, and he left radio in the late 60s and became a motivational speaker, eventually retiring to Palm Springs, California, where he passed away from a stroke in the year 2000. Joy Milne was just 16 when she met her future husband, Les. Les was 17 when Joy transferred to his school. He was a swimmer, quite fit, he had a cheeky sense of humour, he was thoughtful, and he was mild of manner. But there was something else Joy found attractive about Les. Quote, he had a lovely male musk smell. End quote. Joy and Les would spend more and more time together, eventually becoming inseparable. Ultimately, they would marry and have three children. Both pursued careers in medicine, Les becoming a doctor and Joy a nurse. The usual trials of married life didn't affect them. They were a happy family, and Joy and Les remained in love and were very much devoted to one another. But that, unfortunately, would change, and it was precipitated by an odd smell. When Les was 31, he returned from work one afternoon and the male musk smell that Joy had been so taken by had now been replaced by an unpleasant yeasty smell. Joy told him to shower, but the smell remained. Over time it would become a bone of contention, Joy questioning his hygiene practices, and Les feeling a tad miffed about her casting aspersions on his cleanliness, particularly as nobody else had noticed any change. Joy would eventually let it go and learn to tolerate the smell, but over the next few years... Les began to exhibit some odd behaviours and a change in his personality. Les became moody and impatient. He had lost his playfulness and begun to have night terrors. The night terrors became so intense and frequent that Joy insisted that Les be medically examined. Between the changes in personality and the night terrors, Joy began to fear that Les may have a brain tumour. Les dutifully went for a checkup, and much to everyone's dismay, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Their lives would never be the same. Joy and Les would attend a Parkinson's support group. They arrived a tad late and upon entering the room, which already had a number of Parkinson's sufferers milling about and seated, Joy noticed something. It was the unpleasant yeasty odour that had replaced Les's attractive musky scent. Everybody in the room had it to varying degrees. When Joy left the room to speak to the carers who were situated in the kitchen, the smell wasn't present. Joy began sniffing about. No pun intended there, I mean it quite literally. She began deliberately smelling people, surreptitiously of course, and it seemed to Joy that Parkinson's had a smell. 
Later that evening, she put her observation to Les, and as mentioned before, Les was a doctor. The significance of someone being able to smell Parkinson's opened up some fantastic possibilities, particularly as Joy had been able to detect the smell on Les some 14 years before his diagnosis. They would eventually find a researcher named Tilo Kunath, who performed a test where T-shirts were worn by Parkinson's sufferers and separate T-shirts by people without Parkinson's. Joy was tasked with smelling said T-shirts and identifying those which had been worn by the Parkinson's sufferers, which she did with only one mistake. One shirt she claimed was worn by a Parkinson's sufferer. That wasn't. Still, it was a very good result, especially when that one person came forward months later with the news that he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. This gave Joy a 100% success rate. Further testing revealed that Joy might have the ability to detect markers for Alzheimer's, tuberculosis and cancer too. Sadly, her Les, as she called him, passed away back in 2015. But at the time of this recording in 2021, Joy continues to work with researchers to develop early detection methods for Parkinson's and other diseases. An extraordinary woman with an extraordinary ability. In four years of flying, Ava Vishnierska had become the top-ranked female paraglider in the world, winning multiple titles with the only exception being world champion. A devastating setback to competing for the title came in the form of a fractured pelvis after she crashed in Switzerland in 2006, but as you will discover, narrowly escaping death is something Ava has a bit of a knack for. And within just six months, she was flying again and back in contention. This would see her coming to Australia in 2007, to the rural New South Wales town of Manila, 45 kilometres out of the provincial city of Tamworth, for the purpose of participating in a cross-country endurance event called the XC Open. Cross-country paragliders can fly in any direction, it's not a linear race. The winner is the person who stays aloft long enough to cover the most distance. The way one stays aloft is to use thermals, or rising columns of warm air, to gain lift. The best indicator of the position of a thermal is a cloud. Think of the warm air rising like an invisible tree trunk, with the cloud itself sprouting like branches and leaves at the top. On Valentine's Day 2007, Ava arrived at the launch point at Mount Bora. There were storms brewing that day, but it was deemed safe as long as they passed through the cloud mass before it became too dangerous. Ava took off an hour into the launch window, but still considered it safe enough. Indeed, the first part of her flight was unremarkable. Ava was at the rear of the lead group, or gaggle as they are known in paragliding, flying with two other pilots, most notably the very experienced and well-respected Chinese pilot, 42-year-old Hershong Pin. Like Ava, he was one of the world's top paragliders. With most of the gaggle out of danger, the clouds began growing darker. The remaining pilots, Hershong Pin, Gerald Emerseda and Ava Vishnierska, were growing concerned and with good reason the clouds were merging into a storm cell. 
Ava tried to fly around the now menacing clouds, but it was too late. She was pulled up into the cloud like a tissue into a vacuum cleaner. Gerald Emerseda was lucky enough to be at the edge of the cloud mass and was able to use a spiral manoeuvre to pull himself out of danger. Just. Pin also managed to get to the edge of the storm, but unfortunately, on the threshold of safety, he was killed by a lightning strike. Ava wasn't far away in terms of distance, but was nowhere near in terms of safety. She was floating like a leaf, helpless and out of control, in a raging storm and darkness. Climbing at over 40 metres per second, Ava reached an altitude of 7,000 metres. This is known in mountaineering as the death zone because of the lack of oxygen. At this point, Ava passed out. She was out of control and unconscious. According to her GPS recorder, she was travelling up through the storm at 100 kilometres an hour, in temperatures 40 degrees below zero, eventually reaching a height of 9,946 metres. To put that into perspective, at that height she could comfortably clear the top of Mount Everest. Now at minus 55 degrees Celsius and at the edge of the stratosphere, her body had shut down, but miraculously, she was still alive. She was above the storm now and floating along serenely. With her weight slightly to one side of the paraglider, she was doing large circular arcs for some 45 minutes. It was then that her wing iced over and collapsed. According to her onboard computer tracking log, she was now plummeting like a house brick at over 200 kilometers an hour. Ava, it seemed, was doomed. But as if surviving what she had endured so far wasn't miraculous enough, at just over 7,000 metres, having already fallen almost 3,000 metres, the paraglider had thawed out and inexplicably reopened. As the oxygen became more dense and the temperature rose, Ava woke up. Freezing and barely conscious, she mustered the last of her strength and with a mixture of skill, experience, courage and determination, started a slow, spiralling descent. And after what seemed like an eternity, she landed in an isolated paddock. Fortunately, her mobile phone was still working. She sent a message with her GPS coordinates and was rescued soon afterwards. She had a little frostbite to her ears and leg, but was otherwise okay. Ava, unbeaten by her ordeal would take off from the very same spot on Mount Bora, just six days later. An extraordinary woman who survived an extraordinary ordeal. You've been listening to Mr Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care. Catch ya. Gerald Emerseda was lucky enough to be at the edge of the cloud mass 
and was able to use a and was able to use a spiral rem, and was able to use a spiral. Uh, 